This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. and welcome back to Amicus, our first episode of 2015, and we wish you a happy new year. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court correspondent. So we're in the last week of a little break in oral arguments at the Supreme Court, and I confess I've spent it recovering from a whopping back injury. But we figured we'd use this week's podcast to talk a little bit more broadly about how cases make their way up to the Supreme Court, who the lawyers are who bring them there, and what happens when they get there. Last month, Reuters published a really fascinating study that got a little bit lost in the Christmas rush. It offered some provocative answers to these questions. It's called the echo chamber. And the upshot is that less than 1% of the lawyers who file petitions at the U.S. Supreme Court actually get their cases heard. And yet 43% of the cases that actually are taken by the court come from a tiny elite cadre of kind of super lawyers. I've characterized them in the past as the Harlem Globetrotters of uh, the Supreme Court litigators because they're amazing. They can spin basketballs on their arms. They can sink a three-pointer behind their back. Later in our podcast, we're going to hear from not one but two of these super lawyers. But first, we wanted to turn to Joan Biskupic, who writes for Reuters and is one of the co-authors of this piece. Joan, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Dahlia. So as I understand it, and let me know if I mischaracterize this, the point, the overarching point of the echo chamber is that if you want your case heard at SCOTUS, you are six times more likely to get it there if you hire one of these super lawyers. Yes, we wanted to look at the success rates for lawyers submitting uh, petitions for certiorari. As you know, Dahlia, those are the um, filings that launch a case at the Supreme Court. And it's a very high hurdle for the lawyers and their clients trying to get noticed uh, by the justices and picked up and have their appeals uh, set for oral arguments. So we looked at a nine-year period uh, at more than 10,000 petitions involving about 17,000 attorneys to try to identify who uh, was most successful and whether some of those lawyers actually shared characteristics that would be important to bring to light. And what we did was identify 
by 66 lawyers who um, had filed an average of at least one petition a year in this nine-year time frame and had at least three cases granted. And uh, that puts these 66 uh, uh, far above the norm with an extraordinary success rate. And then we looked at who those people were. And uh, they're people who you see on almost a daily basis, uh, arguing before the justices, but also, uh, as I said, uh, filing petitions that become accepted by the justices from the vast field that they get each term. And I wonder if you can tell us, because I imagine that a lot of folks listening are like, well, you know, that's every, every entity has its specialists. Can you talk a little about how this is quite different from what came before? I mean, I remember, you know, I guess I've been covering the court for 15 years, and this was kind of becoming a thing 15 years ago. But 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have a specialized Supreme Court bar, did we? We didn't, but uh, I, I think you're exactly right to say that this has been developing for many years. Uh, I would say from the um, uh, mid-80s when Ronald Reagan's first Solicitor General, Rex Lee, went into private practice and took his specialty on behalf of the federal government to uh, a law firm on behalf of uh, corporate interests. And then other firms realized that there was a really good market here and they picked up. So this has been around for a while, but what I had noticed uh, in recent terms was not so much that we had a specialty bar, but that the specialty bar was contracting, that fewer and fewer were getting more. And I wanted to see uh, if there were certain similarities among these men, and they are mostly men, although we have a handful of women among them, but they're mostly men. Uh, They're mostly white men, and they mostly work for um, law firms that primarily represent corporate interests. And the other thing that's different than before is that the majority of these individuals have close ties to the justices, either... um, as former law clerks working behind the scenes for the justices or representing um, the U.S. Solicitor General's office, commonly referred to as the 10th Justice, arguing on behalf of the federal government. And that office appears at the Supreme Court uh, nearly weekly on behalf of the government, and those individuals get very, very deep experience arguing before the justices, and they, too, often have connections as former clerks. So let's loop back. You've um, touched on a few things that are really important implications, but I think let's unpack them. And the big, big one, I think the one that rocked the way we thought about uh, this Supreme Court bar is the pro-business slant. Do you want to talk a little bit both about the numbers you unearthed and what the consequences are for folks who, for instance, are worried about environmental cases or labor cases? What does it mean that of these elite lawyers, so many of them are involved in uh, business-related practices. Okay, uh, two things on that. First, we know that the the Roberts Court uh, does have a certain inclination already toward business interests. That's been documented, and we have documented that in rulings. But what we wanted to look at uh, was the uh, corporate interest that would emerge in the petition data. And of the 66 most successful lawyers in terms of petitions submitted, 51 worked for law firms that primarily represented corporate interests. And we found that in cases pitting the interests of customers, consumers, employees, and other individuals against those of companies, a leading attorney out of the field we identified was three times more likely to launch an appeal for business than for an individual. And here's here's why that matters. Individuals seeking to challenge large companies are left to seek counsel from a pool of lawyers that's smaller 
uh, and collectively less successful. And I, I underscore the word collectively because individual lawyers who represent the other side most of the time uh, might be successful, but collectively those who are affiliated with corporate law firms prevail at the petition stage much more. And talk a little bit about why when a elite firm gets very, very involved with uh, one particular big business, it gets harder and harder to take cases on the other side. Because uh, individual law firms have conflict of interest policies, just like all lawyers actually have personal conflict of interest policies. Uh, Big firms are not going to want to represent someone who's facing off against a corporation or corporate interest that it's representing. These big law firms have decided it's just not worth their while to take on individuals who want to challenge corporations, environmental interests that might want to challenge corporations, uh, groups of uh, aggrieved employees who might want to challenge corporations. So that means that uh, law firms who might be offering their services for free to um, litigants before the Supreme Court tend to gravitate toward uh, maybe criminal law folks, you know, uh, pro bono cases for those facing the death penalty, rather than for those who might be bringing an environmental claim against a big corporation. I want to turn for a minute to the part of your uh, series that was really striking to me, and I think maybe the part where, you know, I had sort of been reading along and being like, yeah, well, you know, this just happens, you know, big business is, has an outsized voice at the court. We know that. But I wonder if the part that's concerning to me was also most concerning to you, and that is uh, the implication that this serves as a vetting process for the justices, that you got eight of the nine justices, the chief justice, I think, declined to speak, but eight of the nine justices spoke to you about the shrinking elite Supreme Court bar. And several of them said to you, yeah, it's kind of true that we're apt to take cases that are brought uh, by these folks and that, in fact, a huge number of uh, these cases are accepted in some part, at least, because the justices say, well, we trust these advocates and we know they'll be well argued. Uh, That was the case. I was surprised at how strongly they voiced an interest in having a very experienced, uh, highly qualified lawyer tee up the case. Um, Supreme Court justices in the past tolerated a certain degree of uh, messiness, a certain degree of inexperience that these justices that we have now just don't. Uh, They have gotten quite accustomed to having um, former solicitors general, former um, law clerks tee up these cases. And as Justice Kennedy said to me, we see that as a screening function. Many of these lawyers at big firms are not going to take cases that they think are long shots. They're going to take cases that they think play to our interests and have uh, precise legal questions that merit our review. But we felt that uh, it was important to let readers know that these justices seem to have added a new criterion to the mix about which cases get accepted, and that goes to the lawyering itself. And it's I, I'm just thinking as you're talking that it's fascinating to watch the marriage equality cases, which are just poised to finally, finally be taken at the court. It becomes, if you look at the various states and the various petitions from the various states, it really is a kind of a who's who of, you know, there's so many of these elite lawyers uh, bringing so many of the cases. In a, in a strange sense, this seems like the perfect test case for what you're describing, which is the court's going to look at a lot of things when they decide which of these cases to take, but they have to be looking at which lawyer is bringing the case. That's right. Uh, And it's become a fact of life at the Supreme Court that they're looking at the lawyers. And uh, 
they're looking at the rhetoric that these lawyers know to offer. There was a phrase that was used by many people who we interviewed. They speak our language. That was used by the justices, and it was also used by the advocates who would say, uh, you know, I tell clients I know how to speak their language. And there is a certain sophistication up here that has, I think, only deepened in recent years. And it really goes to this criticism that we've heard more and more uh, from those of us who cover the court and even, ironically, from some of the justices themselves about a certain insularity. I think the justices wouldn't use the word insularity, but for instance, Clarence Thomas often publicly bemoans the fact that the justices all come from two law schools. I guess Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg graduated from a third. But really, I think that you see a mirror of that in your own research where these advocates also hail disproportionately from those law schools that they clerk for these justices. And it is really a closed loop that is reflected in the justices themselves, in the clerks, in the advocates, and that simply the pool of people doing things for and at the court uh, looks more and more and more like just one guy. And that guy went to Harvard or Yale. He clerked for a justice and uh, maybe worked at the SG's office. But it's all starting to look very, very familiar. I used the word insularity from start to finish as I was thinking about this whole project, because that's what was striking me. As I said, the contraction of the elite and the fact that when Chief Justice John Roberts would look out at the lectern each day. He would see someone in his image more and more. And I think it is interesting that of the nine justices we have now, three are women, two are minorities, but the bar that is coming before them is uh, getting strikingly similar. In fact, some of the diversity that we had had among our repeat players has been diminished. Joan Biskupic, I want to thank you so very much for joining us on Amicus today, and I also want to thank you for a really important piece of scholarship and research. You know, we're often criticized at the Supreme Court for focusing too much on, you know, one little case and one old lady and one little girl, and it is really, really useful and I think important to advance the conversation by using data and looking longitudinally over many years at big, big trends. So I thank you so much for this story and for joining us today. Thank you, Dahlia. Now we're going to turn to one of the super lawyers uh, named in Joan's piece, uh, and that is Tom Goldstein, who comes from the firm of Goldstein and Russell. He is the founding editor of SCOTUS Blog, the go-to site for all things Supreme Court, and in fact co-hosted the inaugural edition of Amicus. So, Tom, welcome back. It's so great to be back. And we are talking today and just got off the line with Joan Biskupic, whose Reuters article from early December more or less said, man, a bunch of white guys are in charge of everything at the Supreme Court. (laughs) And you're one of those guys. So we thought we'd bring you in to uh, tell us what you thought of the Reuters piece and what you make of this larger claim of insularity and closed offness. And um, there's an amazing uh, word in Hebrew called protexia. I don't think there's an English Mm -hmm. equivalent, but it basically means I know the guy. Uh, So Mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean that the Supreme Court justices like to hear Tom Goldstein argue because he speaks their language? Well, I don't know that any Supreme Court justice has ever said that. (laughs) Um, But it's totally the case that there's a group of lawyers who practice at the Supreme Court a lot. Like there are lawyers that practice in almost every court. You come to know it, you're essentially local counsel. Now, the Supreme Court's different because it has such an outsized influence in the country. It's totally the case that it's dominated by white guys, which is a 
serious failing. It really stems from the fact that so many of these folks are the kind of most senior lawyers at law firms, and so we still have a legacy of how dominated that's been by white guys. Um, and it's probably the case that we have uh, a little bit of an edge, but only a little bit, because the justices know that we'll be back in another case, and so we're likely to be particularly straight shooters with them. And we know, because we practice there a lot, kind of what matters the most to them. Um, So I think all of those are valid points. Um, Everybody has to who's going to argue with the Supreme Court does so for the first time. And there are lots of people who come in and do it for the first time and the only time and do a great job. The justices are very clear about that. And it's certainly no requirement that you be a Supreme Court practitioner to bring a case up there. But almost any time that you want to try and figure out what someone's concerns are or to try and influence them, you're better off dealing with somebody who knows them really well. And I guess that's the that's the marginal advantage of the Supreme Court bar. There's a further claim, you know, suggested by the Reuters pieces that the Supreme Court bar is really helping to push the Supreme Court in the direction of being very pro-business and pro-corporate. And that argument, I think, doesn't really hold water because the public interest groups, the individuals who sue corporations, uh, the unions all have the benefit of this emerging Supreme Court bar, too. Almost all of the merits cases at the Supreme Court, when it's somebody against a company, the somebody is represented by a a lawyer who has a lot of experience at the Supreme Court. So it is a situation, it seems, where a rising tide, if you want to call it that, or a sinking tide, you know, good or bad, uh, has affected all the boats. I I wonder, because you really were one of the... uh people who almost discovered this niche, which was uh, there could be a Supreme Court bar and there could be Mm -hmm. cases that go to the Supreme Court. I wonder if you would just tell listeners who don't sort of know how this happened, if you could help explain both what you did to create your practice and and, and just sort of the nuts and bolts of Mm. how a Supreme Court practice goes about finding cases and sort of wooing the uh, parties. Sure. Yeah, it's the, it's true that I started my law firm when I was a fourth-year lawyer in 1998, 1999. And there really wasn't uh, much of a Supreme Court bar. We, there were some superstar lawyers like John Roberts, now the Chief Justice, of course, and three or four others who did, a, you know, appeared in the Supreme Court with some regularity. But it was a, it's a very traditional place, and it was regarded as very unseemly to go out and try and get involved in the cases. It was regarded essentially as ambulance chasing. And I decided that, okay, uh, if nobody's going to go do this, then that just means there's an opportunity. And the reason there is an opportunity is that Supreme Court review is almost formulaic. In four out of five cases, you can look at the case before it ever goes to the Supreme Court and tell whether it has a really good shot at being reviewed because almost all the time what the justices are doing is trying to resolve disagreements in the courts of appeals. So you look at a case and say, hey, would other courts of appeals have decided this case differently? And then you know a lot about whether the Supreme Court's going to be interested. To a very real extent for that reason, Supreme Court cases are born, not bred. They are what they are. They're going to be reviewed or they aren't going to be reviewed. And so the lawyering, the precise lawyer who's involved can be important, but it's not that critical. So what I did is I started 
calling the lawyers who had the cases in the Court of Appeals and saying, hey, you know, can I help? Can I get involved? And um, originally I didn't have any experience, so I did all the work for free. The first uh, eight cases I did at the Supreme Court, I did it for a total of $8,000. Um, but, you know, tried to keep the lights on at the law firm doing other stuff, and eventually I had the experience uh, to make it possible to get involved in cases where there was some money involved. And now all these law firms, there have got to be 30 law firms that advertise having a Supreme Court practice, even though there are only 70 cases at the court each year. So right now, in, it's very different from the days when John Roberts practiced at the Supreme Court. There is a any case decided by a court of appeals that looks like it has a real chance of going to the Supreme Court, the lawyer will be approached by multiple Supreme Court practitioners almost inevitably. Joan and I were just talking about how in the same-sex marriage cases, it's kind of a who's who of everybody in this bar that Joan's talking about has a thumb in one of these petitions. And it must have been truly this process of, wait, pick me, pick me. I can do it because I can talk to the justices. Is that how it kind of went down? Well, I, you know, I didn't do that. Um, I think that same-sex marriage has been, to some extent, an unseemly example of the process where you had lawyers really trying to position their cases for Supreme Court review, and there was some sense in which the lawyers wanted to argue the case to be a part of history more than they wanted, you know, to really find the best case to produce the outcome. But in any event, who cares who argues it? You know, the justices are going to do what they're going to do. The lawyers don't make any difference in a case like that. I want to ask you one last question while I have you, and that is, you know the docket probably better than anyone, including Justice Scalia. I wonder if you could just tell us, looking at the docket for the 2014 term that we are right at the midpoint of right now, how much is the Reuters critique true in terms of the cases the court is hearing? In other words, what's the mix of business cases and uh, you know, these patent cases, some of these intellectual property that the court is happy to take, as opposed to some of the, the petitions that might have come from environmental groups or uh, individual workers who have employment claims. Is that pretty much borne out her claim that outsized representation of certain types of uh, petitions and others are simply not getting heard? No, I don't think so. If you were to, I think the fair comparison would be to say, hey, how many serious or petitions by companies are being filed and granted versus serious or petitions by individuals and advocacy groups and unions being filed and granted? And if you make that comparison, then the answer is it's pretty even. The reason that there are fewer cases in which an environmental advocacy group or a union or a civil rights group get cert granted is because they are scared to death of the Supreme Court and they don't seek cert. Those organizations are trying to avoid Supreme Court review. They don't want this Supreme Court deciding their cases, whereas the business community, conservative public interest organizations, religious groups, um, uh, pro-life organizations all see the Supreme Court as friends. And so they are actively pushing cases up there. So while the docket is distorted in a sense of who the party is that's uh, getting review granted, that's a, a huge feature of that is who's seeking review and who's trying to stay out of the Supreme Court. 
And with that, we will let you go. Tom Goldstein. Oh. <laughs> you can stay if you want. <laughs> Tom Goldstein uh, is the guy in charge of Scotus Blog. <laughs> His firm, Goldstein & Russell, really is one of the firms that has had fantastic success, not just this term, but in the last several years, uh, getting cases in front of the court. And Tom, as always, it is just a joy to have you here. Thank you for joining it's us. It's so great of you to have me. Thanks so much. Now we're going to turn to Paul Clement. He's a partner at Bancroft PLLC, and he was the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States in the George W. Bush administration. And looking at the data in Reuters, another one of the winningest, winningest uh, lawyers at the Supreme Court bar, and probably more importantly, Paul, 75 arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court. Is that number correct? That number is correct. That is That number is correct, Daya. And it's the second highest? I think it's the second highest of lawyers who are out in private practice. Well, congratulations. And I, I think I want to start you off by saying, uh, just because you're name-checked in uh, Jones Reuters' piece, as somebody who is so loved that the justices' faces just kind of light up when you argue, and, and I'm sure that's incredibly painful for you to read, but like I, I have to say, as an advocate, it's true. Uh, the justices really do love to watch uh, you argue. And I wonder, you know, one of the claims in Jones' piece is that there's this vetting function that they just really like to hear from some people. A, do you think that's accurate, that they just really, really like the lawyers who do this a lot? And B, I wonder if you could tell us that claim that you just speak their language. What what does that involve? Well, okay, let me take it in two pieces. One is, you know, I'd love it if it were really true that the court just really didn't care about whether a case was cert-worthy, but they hadn't heard from, you know, Seth Waxman or Ted Olson for a while, and they think, well, we'll just take one of their cases. But I really don't think that's what's going on here. I really think what's going on here is that, you know, particularly on the business community side of things, there's been a recognition over the last, say, 10, 20 years that if you have a case that is cert-worthy, that instead of maybe what you would have done a decade or two ago, which is if it's a bankruptcy case, I'm a GC at a big company, I'm going to find the best bankruptcy lawyer in the world to do the Supreme Court petition. I think now those same people are recognizing that arguing in front of the Supreme Court is a specialized skill, and so I'm going to seek out one of the top-tier appellate advocates to file that petition. Now, as to the second part of the question, I really do think it's related to this, which is I think the, you know, people have begun to recognize, I think, you know, starting probably 30 years ago with Rexley and others, that this arguing in front of the Supreme Court really is a fairly specialized skill, and that sometimes the Supreme Court, when they take a case, they're looking at it a little differently from the way that the lawyers who practice in the substantive area might look at the case. And I think that's what I meant by talking their language. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago when I was still in the government, I argued a case about the reach of the Clean Water Act. And for a lot of lawyers in the environmental space, that was really all about environmental law. But from the perspective of the Supreme Court, it was really a case about federalism. And where does the federal government's regulatory authority leave off and where do the states start? And to have a lawyer go in there and argue it as if it were just an environmental law case and not a federalism case, I think would have been a problem. I just don't think that that person would have been as good at responding to the concerns that were really motivating the justices in a case like that. I wonder if you might turn to, it seems to me that undergirding 
the the Reuters piece, there is this larger, very, very, in my view, persuasive claim about insularity and the kind of closed circuit that has become not just the court itself, but, you know, the clerkships and the advocates themselves. And there's a feeling that this is a bubble that has gotten smaller and smaller. And in fact, I think one of Jones' claims is that even the Supreme Court bar has become a bubble that's gotten smaller and smaller. And swept up in that, there are a lot of claims about diversity, racial diversity, gender diversity, and that in effect, there's just an awful lot of elite white guys arguing elite cases. Do you have a response to that? Well, I think the way I would respond to that is to say, I'm not sure things have ever been any better. Um, You know, if you go back, you know, the the era of Daniel Webster was not an era of great diversity, right? But I mean, even in recent memory, 30, 40 years ago, um, you really had just a few veterans of the SG's office trying to apply this trade in private practice, and they were uniformly, uh, you know, essentially white male alumni of the of the SG's office. And I think now you really see that, you know, as the, as as I think there are actually more people in the Supreme Court bar than there used to be, even if there may be, you know, more of the overall cases are going to people who are in the Supreme Court bar as opposed to people who are coming in and only arguing kind of, you know, as on a one-off basis. But I think if you sort of look around and you look at the lawyers who are in private practice, uh, you know, if you go around and look at people who are involved in the clinics, if you now have some, uh, you know, lawyers who are arguing cases kind of from a consumer perspective but have a little bit of a Supreme Court specialty in that area, I mean, I, I actually think that it's getting better, not worse. And I, I think relatedly, you know, I think some people have looked at the, the Reuters study, which is, you know, great. I mean, I, you know, my hat's off to Joan for, you know, looking into all this data and crunching the numbers. But I think they focused on the conclusion that somehow this is working in the favor of the corporate bar because the corporate defendants are using Supreme Court specialists more and more. But I think that kind of misses the whole other side of the equation here, which is I don't think the people challenging corporations, challenging, you know, the federal government have ever had better representation, you know, I, I think, you know, again, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the corporations were well represented. They just were more likely to be represented by a substantive area specialty specialist than a Supreme Court lawyer. I think the real shift is on the other side of the V, where, you know, there could have been some very spotty representation, uh, you know, in some of these cases back in the day. But now, you know, especially with the clinics, but with some of these other people as well, I think in most of the cases before the Supreme Court, you have excellent repeat players on both sides of the case. And, and maybe this is a related question, but it seems to me that one filament that runs through Jones' series that has certainly run through a lot of critiques of the court, in, including some of mine over the years, is this question of there need to be different voices at the court. And that's a sort of explicit in Jones' piece. I've probably said it different. But as I thought about it, I, I, I think, what would that look like? What would it look like to have... Uh, more outsiders argue. And I'm trying to think, I'm not completely sure beyond uh, these questions of diversity, what the the tonic, what the cure is for this claim of insularity. Do you have thoughts about this insider-outsider question and what what it is precisely that is missing in this critique and what could be brought to the table that would change things? Or is it simply by the time you're at the oral argument stage, it just helps to speak in a language the justices understand? 
Yeah, you know, I'm probably more in the latter camp, and I also feel like, you know, in some ways, maybe the critique focuses a little bit too much on the lawyer who's at the podium in the final instance. Because I think at that point, when you're down to the last 30 minutes of your case, you're probably well-served to have somebody that the justices are very comfortable with and does speak their language. But it's not like that lawyer is the only lawyer that is involved in the case or the justices are hearing from. And one of the things I really kind of love about the work that I get to do is that I'm always working with groups of lawyers. A lot of times, you know, in in probably my typical case, I'm dealing with either lawyers in-house at a corporation or in a public interest group or in another setting where it's really the first time in that institution's memory they've been at the Supreme Court of the United States. And on the one hand, they're very excited about being there, but on the other hand, you know, they're bringing all this institutional expertise, you know, the, the kind of the way I sort of think about the best way to present a case to the Supreme Court is that, sure, you have somebody at the podium who's speaking their language, and you try to write the briefs in a way that kind of addresses the case in the way that the justices want to know about it, but by the same token, you're backed up by people who you know, practice in a particular area of the law and really kind of understand the practical challenges. So I, I think in a way there, there, there may be more diversity than you see if all you're going to focus on is you know, who's there for that final 30 minutes at the podium. And I'd probably be remiss if I didn't add here that two of my favorite cases to watch argued were Michael Newdow, who challenged the Pledge of Allegiance, and the Fred Phelps case, the the Westboro Baptist Church case. Uh, Newdow argued for himself, as you recall. Fred Phelps's daughter argued. I remember the press corps walked in both of those days going, uh-oh. Oh, boy, this is going to be nutty. Uh, but there is something slightly fun about watching somebody who is so invested in the case, either because it's their petition or, in this case, their dad's petition, uh, and having them go up there and say, boy, this is kind of about me and I'm going to be a little nutty here. Um, do, does that Sometimes does that work or do those tend to backfire? Well, you know, look, it can work. I mean, you know, I, I probably think part of what made – some of those arguments kind of extra interesting to watch was the palpable sense that anything could happen next. <laughs> and, and to the extent the justices aren't looking for that, I don't really blame them. Right. But I guess I think, you know, at a minimum, I would just say that, you know, in a lot of these cases, you know, you can focus on, oh, well, you know, it's just another familiar face for the court. But that's because you're only looking at sort of the counsel of record or the top name on the brief. And I think as long as the Supreme Court specialists can sort of do their job of conveying all of the expertise of the people that have lived with the case from the very beginning. You know, I think that can still be in some ways the most effective way to present the case to the Supreme Court. Paul Clement is a partner at Bancroft PLLC and was the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States and is always, always a joy to watch at court and is a joy to talk to here on Amicus. Paul, thank you very much for joining us here today. No, my pleasure. Great to talk with you. And that is it for this episode of Slate's Amicus Podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show and what you'd like to hear more of or less of on this year's episode of the show. You can always reach us at amicus at slate.com. That's A-M-I-C-U-S at slate.com. We love your letters. We love your support. Thank you to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. The managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We'll be back with you soon for the next edition of Amicus.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.